going to take an informal poll. Would you, would you rather is the question. Now, I'll tell you this. When I was a youth pastor years ago, these were really, really fun to do because we would get some really crazy would-you-rather questions. You can imagine a group of teenagers gathered together. Some of them were not exactly the kind you'd repeat in front of church. Would you rather? They'd get a little gross from time to time. But would-you-rather was one of the fun games that we would play. Would-you-rather this morning, would-you-rather be able to fly or disappear? That's the question. How many of you would say, I'd choose, I'd rather fly? Anybody? <clears throat> How many of you would rather have the ability to disappear? That's almost split down the middle. I think I'd rather fly. That's just me. Because when you, you know, you could disappear, but you still got to deal with the people you disappeared in front of. They're still there. You fly, you can get away. You know, that's, maybe that's it. Would you rather watch a sunrise or a sunset? How many of you would rather watch the sunrise? Anybody? How many of you would rather watch the sunset? I think I'm a sunset guy. The sunset's back that way. And so when I look out of the house, back toward the cornfield across Highway 80, it's really, really beautiful. One of these days, though, I'm going to watch both, one on one coast and one on the other in the same day. That's one of my, one of my bucket list items. I'm going to be on the, the Atlantic coast, and I'm going to watch the sunrise, and I'm going to fly across the country and beat the sunset to the Pacific coast and watch it go down. That's what I'm going to do. Now, young people, I won't make you raise your hand on this one. Young people, would you rather dress like your parents or act like them? <laughs> make them raise their hand. Evan's on the spot there. I mean, that's one of you're just like, man, leave me alone. Don't make me choose neither. Let me get out of here. Would you rather get shot from a cannon or walk the high wire? How many of you would get shot from the cannon? Anybody? Oh, that's me. I'm taking the cannon. Anybody want to walk the high wire? You guys are brave folks here. I'm taking the cannon. You get a helmet with that, I'm taking a cannon and a net. How many of you, let's see, would you rather be Batman or Superman? Who's Batman here? Superman? Oh, y'all are killing me. Batman. You know, to some of these things, we would say neither. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. Neither one of those. To some, we would say both. You know, if I gave you, would you rather be rich or famous? Both. Maybe. What if you were rich and had no chance of being famous? You know, I mean, which one? To some we would say neither, to some we would say both. But what if you really had to choose? What if there was a choice and you can't pick both? You can't choose neither. You've got to pick one or the other. Some of these things, as we would go through, I've got a whole book of would you rathers. It would get really difficult to choose if you had to pick one. What if there's no way to have middle ground? Most of our lives are lived on some kind of middle ground. We, we don't have to make choices all the time. It's, well, I'm, I'm going to do this to the exclusion of this, or I'm going to choose this, which means I can't ever choose this. We don't, want, we don't really like things where we have to settle on one or the other. We, we really like that middle ground. But as we'll see in the Bible today, the Bible is full of stories and it's full of challenges for us to make a choice. What kind of commitment will we make to the Lord? And I will tell you this, it's an either-or commitment. It's not a both-and. It's not a middle ground. It's an either-or. And so if you came this morning and, and, and you've never been here before or you're not sure what we're doing, we're in a series that is ending today, a sermon series called Commit. The idea being that in culture today, we see the commitment of any kind is extremely rare. 
You can look across in, in work life or home life or any, any area of life, and you see that commitment is a rare thing. Most people don't want to commit to something, and if they say they commit to it, we always leave ourselves an escape hatch and we'll bail out. And so commitment is very rare. When it comes to Christian commitment, when it comes to a commitment to Jesus, that's even more rare, and it's becoming less and less popular in our country and in our world. It's okay to be a quote-unquote committed Christian so long as you're not really a committed Christian. So long as that stuff really doesn't matter in your life and it doesn't work its way into what you say and how you act and what you believe, fine, you can be a Christian. But we know that the Bible teaches us something different. And so it's the perfect time really to, to look at the Scripture and say, what, what really does the Lord want from us? If you're asking God, what do you want from me? I believe it's summed up in one word, and that is to commit. I believe... That covers a lot of bases, and so we've been talking about this idea of commitment. What does that mean? And we're wrapping it up this morning in a scripture in Joshua chapter 24. Now, if you've got a Bible handy, or if you can get to the scripture somehow, you've got the little handout there in your bulletin. There's a code that you can scan. It'll pull up some online notes if you'd rather look at the scripture that way. Get it on your tablet or smartphone. However it is, I want you to look at the scripture this morning. Joshua is a book over in the Old Testament. And, and it's, a, it's a history book, really. It tells the story of what Israel did after they reached what was known in the Old Testament as the Promised Land, this, this land that God had given them. What did they do? Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about commitment, and we'll wrap it up today with the idea that, that when we're committing, we, we've got to make a choice. And that's what we'll see here, a, really a, a leader who puts it to the people to say, it's time today to make a choice on who you're going to follow. Now, the first 13 verses of Joshua 24, just to give you a, a little bit of a recap, the leader of the, the nation of Israel at the time, a man named Joshua, has gathered all of the people together. And there are 12 different groups of people. They called them tribes. And so there are 12 different large family groups that had lots and lots of people. And they are about to go to their designated pieces of land in this new area, this new country that God had given them. And so he's got them all lined up, they've gathered together, and he quotes for them what God has said, all that God has done. And over and over, God uses, I've done this, I've done this for you, I've done that, and so on. He recounts for them how God at the Red Sea delivered them through the exodus out of Egypt and out of slavery. He talks about the fact that in the wilderness wanderings that they did for about 40 years, that God took care of them, and then through the battles that they had to fight in order to take over this land, that God had directed them and God had been with them the whole time. And so, out of all of that, here's, here's this idea. Folks, don't forget what God has done for you. Joshua then, beginning in verse 14, tells them, here's what you're to do in response. And so that's where we pick up the story. Now, we're going to kind of work through this just a little bit, but I want you to look at verse 14. He says, Therefore, so as a result, in light of all that God has done for you, they're there at the end of the conquest. They're getting ready to settle in the promised land. He's giving them some final words, sort of like sending somebody out for the very first time on their own, or the pregame speech from the coach. You guys are ready to take the field, ready to, to enjoy what God has done in your lives. He says, therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. The idea there of fearing the Lord is to have deep reverence for him, to, to operate in your life with piety and, and holiness, to tremble at God's displeasure. That's part of fearing the Lord. He says, fear the Lord and worship him. Now, our version that we're using this morning uses the word worship. Some of your versions might say serve. It's a word that really means obey. The idea of worship is not something that we come to, like this morning we came to worship 
to a worship service. It's something that we do through our obedience and our devotion to the Lord. So when he's saying worship the Lord, he's saying devote yourselves, be obedient to the Lord. He says worship in sincerity and truth, wholeheartedly, completely, with nothing messing you up, with, with nothing that impairs you from truly obeying the Lord. That's the kind of commitment that you're supposed to have. Not, not just obey the Lord enough to feel better about yourself. Not, not just check off a few boxes that you think, well, those church people probably would like this if I did these things. Or maybe God would be pleased and sometimes the good will outweigh the bad, maybe. And not, not that kind of commitment, not that kind of worship, not that kind of obedience, but wholeheartedly, completely. So you see from the beginning, when Joshua sets up, here's all folks that God has done for you. The response is to worship him, to obey him completely, wholeheartedly. And he, and he goes on. He says, get rid of the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and worship or obey the Lord. So he says, not only must you have this overall commitment, but you've got to get rid of the stuff that's getting in your way. Now, when he talks about these false gods, they would have had little statues, little symbols, little things that they had made that represented these different gods, maybe the sun god or the god of the harvest or god of love or something like that. And they would have these statues. Joshua is telling them, literally, sweep those things out of your house. Get rid of means to have a clean sweep. Some of you might remember the show on TLC years ago called Clean Sweep. And these people who had all this junk in their houses, not that that would represent anybody here who might need to go on Clean Sweep, but they had all this junk in their houses and they'd make these piles, get rid of, sell, all this stuff. And, they, and by the end of the show, it's amazing, in like 45 minutes, they had their whole house cleaned up. It's incredible. It's a miracle. And so by the end of the show, they've, they've gotten all this, and they clean sweep. They get to start over. Joshua's telling them, it's time to get rid of all this junk. It's time to get rid of all these little statues that you've set up to worship and sweep those out of your house. And he says, and worship the Lord. Obey the Lord. Don't give yourselves to these false gods anymore, these things that will demand from you something that they can't provide, and they're going to leave you, lead you astray. He says, worship the Lord. Give God his due and get rid of all competitors. God was saying to them in verses 1 to 13, do you see all that I've done for you? Do, do you get it? Do you understand all that I have done for you? And when you understand all that I've done for you, your response, my requirement of you, is absolute, wholehearted, total devotion and commitment. Just love Him back. Now, I want to fast forward to the New Testament because I believe God is saying the exact same thing to us today. When we look at the New Testament, we understand all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. When we understand that in our sin, we deserve nothing but eternal punishment in hell. When we understand that Jesus, out of his grace and love, came to earth and lived a perfect life so that we, we wouldn't have to because we can't. When he died a sacrificial death on our behalf, the one that we deserve to die according to God. When he was buried, taking our sin to his grave, leaving it behind when he was resurrected and now offers us eternal life through faith in him. When we see all that he has done for us, we could say the same words that Joshua said. Get rid of all the junk that's standing in our way and wholeheartedly commit to him. God is saying the same thing to us that he was saying to them. You see all I've done for you. Maybe this morning you just need to be reminded or hear for the first time. Have your eyes open to the fact that you understand what God has done for you. The things that you can't do for yourself, that's what God has done for you. If you're a person this morning who came thinking, well, you know what? I'm a good person. I, I, I'll be okay because God, I, God likes good people. And one of these days, the good will outweigh the bad. Now, with, with as much sensitivity and, and compassion as I can say to you, 
That is the most arrogant statement that you could ever make. That God will allow me, based upon my goodness, to enter heaven because I'm so good. You realize how arrogant it is to assume that I'm good enough for God? There's only one, Jesus said, who is good, and that is God himself. Everybody else, Romans tells us, has fallen short of his standard. There is none that's good. Not one of us. Not me, not you, not anybody. Not anybody famous. Not anybody you think that is so super spiritual. Nobody. It's arrogant to think that we can be good enough for God. What humility requires of us is that we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ and say, I recognize all that you've done for me, and I just give you everything. I'm pushing all my chips into the table with you, not me. Joshua says, do you understand what God has done for you? And if you do, then just love him back. Respond with wholehearted devotion. And he goes on, and I love this part in verse 15. Joshua's not there to coerce them. He's not there to put his thumb on them. He just says, if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, he said, and that word, if it doesn't please you, means if you think it's useless, if you think this has no point, if you think it's worthless to obey the Lord, then he says, choose for yourselves today. The one that you will obey. The one that you will worship. He says, fine, I'm not going to coerce you. I'm not going to tell you anything to to try to manipulate you. And listen, this morning, I can't make you do anything. And I'm not going to try to make you do anything. I'm simply going to tell you, here's what God has done for you. Here's the choice that's required. What will you do with it? That's all I'm going to tell you. Joshua just says, look, if you don't think it's of any good, if you think it's useless to worship and obey the Lord, fine. Then you pick. Who will you worship? He says, you can worship these false gods. Look at verse 15. You, the gods your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. You're going to worship the real God, Yahweh God, the God eternal creator, savior of the world, or are you going to worship these, these gods that your fathers have passed along to you, these ancestral gods that for some reason never got eliminated from the nation of Israel. They'd always sort of kept these things around, kind of leaving the door open, so to speak, for this worship of these false gods. He says, are you going to worship the true God? The God who has been faithful to you. He says, the proper response to God and all that he has done for you is to forsake other gods, other things that get in your way, the things that we follow and give our devotion to, and be devoted to him. He realized that the same God he was talking about back then is the same God that we worship today. The same God who had recounted all these things. Look what I've done to deliver you. I got you out of slavery. I even swallowed up your great enemy, Egypt, in the Red Sea, and I've given you now a land that will be full of what they said, milk and honey. It's going to be incredible. Milk means there's lots of cattle. Honey means the land is great. It's going to be incredible, this promise that I've given to you. You realize that the same concept has happened for us. That Jesus, through the cross, has given us a means of exodus from the penalty and the power of sin, and in his resurrection, he has swallowed up, just like at the Red Sea, our greatest enemy, death, and has given us eternal life, that true promised land. The same God that they were to respond to is the same God that has delivered us as well. And he says, if you're going to worship, who are you going to worship? He said, you can't have both. You can't pick both. It's kind of like those of you who say that you pull for U of L when they're not playing UK. It's garbage. Or those of us who say, oh, yeah, I pull for UK when they're not playing U of L. Come on. That's a joke and we all know it. You're hoping they lose every single game. You realize that's the kind of thing you're going to fall on one side or the other. Which color are you going to wear, blue or red? Which one? That's what Joshua is telling them. 
Two value UK. You see how this, I mean, God is involved in this. And, and obviously, as I've mentioned before, I, I truly believe God's a UVL fan. Uh, I've got plenty of scriptural backup. I mean, I write a couple extra books in there, but there's plenty of scriptural backup. But no, in all seriousness, you realize it's the same kind of concept. Joshua's saying, look, pick one. If you don't think it's any good, if you think it's useless to follow the Lord in this new promised land that he's given you, then you choose for yourselves today who you're going to worship. And he says, I love this in verse 15, as for me and my house, we're going to obey the Lord. It just sets the example. He says, as for me and everybody who's living and serving in my house, everybody I've got influence over, this is going to be my goal for them, that we will serve and worship and obey the Lord. What an incredible, some of you probably have that verse hanging in your house. Some of you probably memorized that. You know, when you began to, this idea of, of, of having a family, maybe when you got married or you had children, right, you say, I'm going back to that. As for me and my house, I don't care what anybody else does. As for me and my house, we're going to obey the Lord. This is going to be the influence I bring to my home, the influence of God. Joshua believed, as, as we should believe, in changing the world one family at a time. Don't ever underestimate. Parents, if you're here, I don't care if you're a single parent, if you're, if you're married, if you've been remarried, however it is. Don't ever underestimate the power of changing the world one family at a time. Work on what God has given you. Exert influence where God has given you, in your home primarily and wherever else he allows you to be. Joshua said, as for me and the people that I can influence, I'm going to influence them to obey the Lord. That's where I'm starting. And verse 16 is, is great. Joshua puts it to him. The people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. They say, God forbid we ever do that. Not us. We would never abandon the Lord. I mean, you see this back and forth. Joshua standing in front of the people. Folks, let me tell you, you've got to make a choice today. And they say, it's easy. Our choice, we're going to worship, we're going to obey the Lord. They would never depart from the Lord, they promised. I mean, it's like a pep rally. Everybody gets fired up. You know, I, I got spirit. Yes, I do. How, you know, we got spirit. How about you? And the other side, hey, they go back and forth. You know, some of y'all remember those old things. You know, those old cheers. Some of you did those. Some of you have pictures. You'd rather not be revealed of you leading those cheers. But we got spirit. How about you? And Joshua tells them, look, I'm going to serve the Lord. What about you? And they say, we will too just like at a pep rally. But you have to understand that they're standing before the promised land, and it's awful tempting to say at that time, well, yeah, I'll serve the Lord. I mean, look what I get to experience. If it makes it easier for Joshua, for you to shut up for a while, and for us to go on and move into the promised land, you stop talking so we can get over there. We'll worship the Lord. We'll do it. They recount in verses 17 and 18, For the Lord our God brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, the place of slavery, and performed those, these great signs before our eyes. He also protected us along the way. And we went uh, the way we went and among all the peoples whose lands we traveled through, the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because He is our God. They knew all the right things to say. Everything, they knew it. They knew what God had done. They even believed what God had done. And yet, as we'll see, maybe it was more of a pep rally for them. Now, they credited everything to God, not coincidence. They, they weren't just superstitious. Well, isn't that interesting how that worked out in my life? They knew that God's hand had been on them. They knew all the right things to say. And yet, listen to what Joshua tells them in verse 19. But Joshua told the people, that word told means bring to light. He said, have you thought about this? You will not be able to worship the Lord because he is a holy God. 
He's a jealous God. He will not remove your transgressions and your sins. Verse 20, if you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he's been good to you. How would you like to get that in a sermon? But that's what he tells them. Look, you don't understand the seriousness of the commitment. You don't understand what this is all about, he tells him. He recognizes, at least it appears to me, that maybe there's something pep rally-ish about what they're saying. And he says, hold on a second, folks. It's really easy when everybody's gathered together, and we're all excited. You're all there, and we're all here in church. Whatever it may be, it's really easy to make that kind of excited commitment to the Lord. He said, you don't get it. You better understand who God is. If you're making this commitment, you understand He's holy, and that's what's expected of you. He's not somebody to be toyed with and trifled with. He is a holy God. Joshua knew God, and so he tells the people, look, this is not what you think it is. This isn't something you can just tip your hat to God and go on with your daily life however you want to. He said, that's not what it's about. He said, because if you persist in rebellion and, and you defect against God, He will not let it go unpunished. He's not going to take that lightly. That's what he's telling them in verses 19 and 20. He's a jealous God. He tolerates no rivals. There will be no competition, he says, between God and something else or someone else in your life. That's it. So you better be all in or not in at all. That's what he's telling them. Here's more of the choice. Kind of see what he's saying. He's not saying God is not a God of forgiveness. He's just letting them know, because we know God is a God of forgiveness from beginning to end. But we know that, that he's, he's telling them, you better take God seriously. Don't mess around with this. Don't, don't say, oh yeah, that, that, that's fine. Uh, preacher, I, I got you. It, it'll be okay, trust me. He's saying you better pay attention. You had better make sure that there are no rivals in your life. You know, Jesus made this clear as well. Matthew chapter 6, he said you can't serve two masters. And in that scenario, he's talking about God and money. You, you're going to serve God, you're going you're to serve one and hate the other. Or you're going to give your devotion to one and abandon the other. That's what he said. Jesus made the same point. And even in John 14, 6, Jesus said, there's only one way you can get to God. There are not multiple ways. He said, it's only through me, Jesus, that you can get to God. So he tells them, hold on, do you understand that this relationship that you're going to have with the Lord is going to be like a marriage where if your eyes wander, if you flirt, if you have an all-out affair, God is a jealous God. He ain't going to put up with that. Just like a spouse would not put up with that at all and shouldn't. It requires undivided love. God wouldn't let them keep persisting in their disobedience and rebellion without saying and doing something about it. He says he'll completely destroy you. He'll harm you. That word means he'll make you useless. He said in verse 15, if you think it's useless to follow the Lord, then fine, he'll make you useless. He always uses the same word. Verse 21, no, people answer Joshua, no, we, that's, we're not going to do that. We'll worship the Lord. Okay? They reiterate, reiterate their promise. They deny any possibility that they're going to abandon the Lord. Jo Joshua told the people in verse 22, you are witnesses. I'm going to hold you to it. You're witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to worship the Lord. We are witnesses, they say. So they agree. Here they, they go back and forth again. Joshua says, look, I've told you, you've got to make a choice. You've got to understand the serious nature. They say, we're all in. We got you. He says, fine. I'm going to hold you to it. You are going to be your own witnesses. Your own word will come back to get you if this is not true. And he says in verse 23, uh, and, and this, this makes sure you get this part. 
understand this part right here because this is the part that they didn't do. He says, then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and offer your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, fine, you want to say you're going to obey the Lord. That's wonderful. The commitment verbally is one part of it. He said, but the specific action to get rid of these things, that's where it's at. That's where you prove your devotion to the Lord. He says, you better clean out all this junk, all these little statues, all these false gods that you worship. You get rid of those things. He uses terminology, like I said, about sweeping the house clean. This is used elsewhere in a military term to to denote stepping out of line. He says, fine, if you're going to serve the Lord, you step out of line and you get out of the ranks of those other gods. He says, destroy all the idols that you have. Physically destroy them. Crush them. Bury them. Get them out of your house as far as you can. And I wonder this morning for us, as we look at what God said to them, that if you're going to devote yourself to the Lord, you've got to get rid of anything that's hindering. I wonder, would you be honest and and answer the question between you and God, what's hindering you from all-out devotion to Him? What is it? Maybe it's some habit or a sin or something in your past or, or an attitude that you have that you're unwilling to let go of. What's standing in your way? What's holding you back? What's weighing you down from complete devotion to the Lord. Because if you're going to obey the Lord, it's got to be exclusive according to God's word from beginning to end. It goes back to the most important commandment that Jesus said, which goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not part of it. All your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Everything about you. That's what he said. That's the commitment. So the people said to Joshua, verse 24, We will worship the Lord our God and obey Him. Now it's subtle. But Joshua in verse 23 had said, worship the Lord by getting rid of all the idols, all the stuff. You get rid of all these things that represent the other gods you're following. Clean those out of your house. Crush them, burn them, bury them, whatever. They respond with, we'll obey the Lord. Nothing about the idols. Nothing. We don't have any evidence here whatsoever that they followed through with anything more than a verbal commitment to the Lord. We don't see anything that they specifically do to say, all right, in order to make sure that I'm not going to follow these false gods, I will get them as far away from me as possible. I will destroy them so that my focus is not distracted from the Lord. It's almost as if they kind of left the door open. And you say, well, how do you know? that. Well, if you've got a, a, a Bible, physical copy there, or you can turn somehow on your, your device. If you look in the next book, Judges, it's just, just the next chapter. How, how is it that I can say, well, it appears they left the door open to continuing to have these other things dominate their lives... In, in Judges, you look at um, you look at verse uh, six of chapter two. Joshua sent the people away. And the Israelites went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Verse eleven. 
the Israelites then, later on, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Eventually, the story wasn't told anymore. Eventually, those old idols gained some interest again. They worshipped the Baals, abandoned the Lord, those Baals, false gods. They, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of Egypt. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the asterisk. The story goes on. In Judges, it's, a, it's an awful book to read. Not because it's poorly written. Not because the story isn't interesting. But the final statement in the book of Judges tells us that in those days, it says there was no king, they had no spiritual leader, and the people did whatever they thought was right. Whatever was right in their own eyes. Do you know where all this started? It started in verse 24 of Joshua 24 when they said, oh yeah, we'll worship the Lord. Joshua, we got you. It's all good. And yet they did not clean out from their lives the things that would eventually raise their evil heads and distract them again from the Lord. This isn't about just saying, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm committed. I'm going to follow the Lord. You realize that's not enough? Do you realize that things will distract you, that those old things in your lives will not go away unless you replace them with something of God and get rid of those things? They won't go away. Verses 25 to 28 of chapter 24 there in Joshua tells us that on that day Joshua made a covenant for the people at Shechem and established a statute and an ordinance for them. So he draws up a contract, a covenant. Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone and set it up there under the oak tree next to the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, You see this stone. Here's their marker. It will be a witness against you, for it has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. And it will be a witness against you so that you will not deny your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. He sets up this marker. He says, Folks, look. Anytime you see this big rock, you just better be reminded of the commitment that you've made. He says, you'll pass by it, you'll talk about it, and let it remind you of the commitment today that you're making. All of that is done, he says. This rock there is to symbolize, to remind you not to deny the Lord, not to abandon Him, not to lie to Him, not to fake submission to Him. The rock was sort of like in a marriage, a wedding band. And in every wedding that I do, I will tell the, the couple to, to be reminded that wedding band is a symbol that you belong to somebody else. It's sort of like in the locker room of a football team. It's that poster, play like a champion today, and they all tap it on the way out to go into the field. It's sort of like that. This rock would be a reminder, a visible, tangible reminder of their commitment. I, I wonder for you, maybe today... And I'm not talking about that you go worship the rock. You understand? That wasn't to be an idol for them. But a reminder, I wonder, do you have things and people in your life that will testify and hold you accountable to the fact you've made a commitment to the Lord? Do you have anybody who, who you allow to speak into your life and to say, look, if you see me doing something really stupid, would you just tell me that that's stupid and that's sinful? You might not know it's sinful, but I, I, just, I think it is. Do you have anybody... Who, who is it that can help you in this journey? Because if you go alone and you don't have that witness rock, you don't have some reminder, you don't have some person who will help you, you're in trouble. What, what, what is God saying through this particular story? I mean, it's a great story of commitment. 
You know, the, the choice throughout the Bible that we're constantly, constantly told about is this choice of either or. You'll see this on the fill in the blanks that you've been waiting so long for. So patiently, I appreciate that. The choice is either God alone or God abandoned. That's it. The choice that we're presented with from Old Testament to New is either God alone or God abandoned. God alone, no rivals, no competitors. Jesus himself would say that. There is no other way to get to God except through Him. He alone deserves your worship. Jesus Christ must alone be the Lord of your life. And if that's not your commitment, then it's God abandoned. It's just lip service. It's just walking, trying to ride the fence. Those are the choices. You see in Joshua, he says, you choose the Lord or you choose to abandon Him. That's it. And throughout the Scripture, there is nothing else. The reason we need to understand this is because there is no neutral position. Now, now, now the problem is, is we, we like the neutral position. We live as if we truly believe there is some neutral position. As if I'll give God a few things, I'll toss even some money into that plate when it goes around... But when it comes to actually living for the Lord, we live, by and large, in America especially, and unfortunately in American Christianity, we live as if we believe there's some neutral position, as if I can follow the Lord and do also whatever else I want to do and follow these other things. We live like we believe there's a neutral position. The Scripture tells us there's no middle ground. You either choose God alone or you choose to abandon God. You're either completely committed or you're not committed at all. That's hard. But it's true. The question after all of that truth, here's what God is saying. It's God alone or God abandoned. There's no neutral position. The question then becomes, okay, what do I do now? I mean, I could give you all this truth and never tell you anything that you go do with it. What good has that done you? You just filled your mind with some new truth. What What should be the response to what... God is saying to us today. Now, this is not on your outline. I just I added this later. So you're, you, I hope you left room. I, I want to give you a, a new goal this morning that I believe everybody can apply to your life in some way. And the new goal is simply this, that I will be the most godly, and you fill in the blank, that my whomever will ever know. I, when I, I gave a speech in college, in public speaking, like that class that everybody's terrified of, you know, that class that you, you don't, you know, everybody has to take it. They, they, they ask us to give a goals speech. I was 18 years old, freshman at Murray State University, and, you know, at that point, all I, my main goal, I guess, was to to play baseball and play some more baseball. I don't know. I mean, that was what I wanted to do. I, and, but as I began to think about this, I set a goal then that, I, that, I, that at times I've forgotten, at times I've ignored, but that God keeps bringing me back, back around to it. And the goal was that I would be the most godly man that my wife and children would ever know. I don't know about you. What needs to go in the blanks 
Today, as you say, I'm going to commit to the Lord, and here's what I'm going to set my sights on, that I will be the most godly what? What is it? What role do you play? That, that whomever, for whomever you play that role, what, is it the most godly parent your children will ever know? Is it the most godly co-worker that your friends at work will ever know? The most godly person that the people at school will ever see? What is it? Maybe you've got several things. You need to stack them up. But we go back to what Joshua said in Joshua 24, 15. What did he say? As for me and my house, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. I will be the most godly man that they'll ever know. It's not for my credit. It's so that they'll know the Lord based upon the fact that his life has been lived through me. It all sounds good, but how do you get there? I want to give you a starting point this morning, and I'll close. In in order to get there, let me encourage you to consider and then make this commitment that I will no longer bow to the God of what? What gods do you bow to? Is it it some God of love and acceptance that you, you are absolutely, your life is centered around getting love and acceptance from people? Is it a God of of money or influence or power, success, comfort maybe, control, recognition, approval, some sense of personal meaning or importance? I mean, what God do you serve? You realize when Joshua told them to choose who they were going to obey, he recognized the universal truth about humanity that you will worship something or someone. Period. The choice is not this morning between serving and worshiping God or, or complete and personal, complete and total personal freedom. Those aren't the choices. Because if you choose to abandon God, you will choose to be enslaved by someone or something. Period. That's in your nature. If you disagree, we can talk later and we'll prove it to you. You are enslaved. You are obeying. You are following something or someone. Jesus said about himself, I'll set you free. Be my slave. Be my my servant. I'll set you free from all this. Tell me how money does that for you. Tell me how your desire for influence or power or success, tell me how that quest for approval sets you free. It's got you trapped this morning. And Jesus says, based upon the cross, his death and his resurrection, I'll set you free from all of it. The requirement is that we surrender it all to him. I will be the most godly whatever that my whomever will ever know. What is it? And to get there, would you say, I'm no longer going to bow to this anymore. This will not control my life. I will not obey this anymore. God alone, not God abandoned. This morning, the invitation is a simple call to repentance. To place your faith in Jesus Christ as you turn from a life of sin, as you turn from things that have you trapped, and turn to the one this morning who will set you free. You may need to this morning come and pray or pray with your family and make that commitment to your family. Just maybe like that goal that I set. I will be for you all the most godly man that you'll ever know. That is my goal. And to do that, I am no longer going to chase this. I don't know for you what the commitment needs to be this morning. God does, and I pray that you do business with Him. I'll be down front in just a moment. If you'd like me to pray for you, I will. 
But I'll tell you this, you don't have to come to me to get to God. You go through Jesus Christ, the Bible says, our one mediator, our one go-between, between us and God, He alone. You go through Him. I'll pray for you, but I can't give you what He can give you. Don't leave here this morning without the choice being made. God alone, Jesus alone, or God abandoned. Let's pray together. I want to pray for you specifically this morning. And I in no way want to embarrass anybody here, so I'm not going to ask you to talk about it. I won't ask you to even raise your hand or to come forward if you're not comfortable with that. I just want to know, is there anybody this morning that I can pray for specifically to say, you'd admit, look, I'm struggling with this. There are so many things in my life right now that I seem to bow to, and I no longer want to do that. Would you pray for me? And maybe just like that witness stone that was set up in Joshua 24, you'd say, on September 14, 2014, that morning, I'll remember that. All I would like for you to do, and we've got heads bowed and eyes closed across the auditorium, I'm not going to ask you again to look around. But if that's you and you'd say, look, there's something in my life that keeps getting me. There's a God in my life that that I keep serving and obeying. And I want this morning for it to be God alone. Yahweh, Jesus Christ alone in my life. All I'd like for you to do is make eye contact with me. You can put them right back down. I will pray for you, not by name. Jesus' name.